Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. If you use Amazon and you want to support the podcast this holiday season or any other season coming up for that matter, you can go on my website, funboatdiplomacy.com, and on the right-hand side of any of my pages, you'll find my Amazon portal link. Just click on the link, uh, shop on Amazon as you normally would, and Amazon will share a small cut with me to keep everything on Funboat Diplomacy up and running into the new year and beyond. Thanks everyone for listening, and please enjoy this week's episode with Mr. David Lake. Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Funboat Diplomacy. I'm here today, finally after three days of planning, uh, with David Lake. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I finally got here. We finally got here. Uh, would you like to give the audience a little introduction? A yeah, brief yourself? history. I was uh, born in New York City in 1951. I served in the United States Marine Corps from 1973 to 1995. And I then worked for the U.S. State Department from 1995 to September of this year, 2015. A lot of service. A long time, yeah. unplanned. Yeah. Um, so why don't we start from the beginning of your service? And you, you said it was seventy-three of commissioning. Yes. Right. So, well, the process is: I was at the University of Oregon, and they had a naval ROTC program. I chose what was referred to as the Marine Corps option, going to the Marines as opposed to the Navy. Uh, after graduation, I was or previous to graduation, between my junior and senior year, I went to what's called the Basic School at Quantico, Virginia. Uh, upon graduation, I went to the Officer's Candidate School at Quantico, Virginia, graduated, was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. Uh, so that was the beginning of my Marine Corps service. I was attached to the 3-1, that was, was the 3rd Battalion, 1st Regiment of the Marines, which is, <clears throat> is uh, permanently stationed. In Pendleton, Camp Pendleton, California, Southern California, and that was where my service began. I had not went into the Marine Corps thinking I was going to make a career out of it. I had not started college thinking about going into Naval ROTC, but I did. And my term of obligation was four years of service after graduation because they did pay for most of my tuition and gave me a stipend when I was in school. Uh, and when I came to the four years, I was enjoying it and decided to pursue uh, at least a couple more years, and that turned into another 18 years. It always becomes a couple more years, a couple more years. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the first place you were in was? Uh, it was in Camp Pendleton, California. Mm -hmm. um, from our previous discussion, uh, I know you wanted to hear about my Vietnam experience. I do. I... I received my commission in June of 1973. America's active involvement in Vietnam uh, had ended the previous April, April, April 30th, 1973. However, for two years, we still kept a presence in South Vietnam. And in March of 1975, I was sent to Vietnam to help with the evacuation of the American Embassy and other American installations there. And so I was able to witness really the final days of South Vietnam, uh, culminating at the very end of April, where uh, we were helicoptered out, out to the ships, along with Vietnamese nationals, many of them that, who were actually ethnic Chinese. Uh, this is something that a lot of people don't realize, that many of the boat people uh, were in fact ethnic Chinese or part Chinese or uh, Vietnamese government officials. Uh, even though they're ethnic Chinese, they had lived in Vietnam for generations. But uh, they many of them lived in Holon City, which was uh, a suburb of Saigon. And uh, they, it was also called Chinatown and uh, referred to as Chinatown. So in the last few days, I mean, it was chaos there, chaos. Um, I don't think I slept more than, I don't know, six or seven hours in four days. Uh, we, we, you know, the place was just pandemonium. People trying to get out, people having visas, couldn't get visas.
and we couldn't get visas. Uh, and we were, you know, I mean, it was heart-wrenching. I mean, they, the people getting separated, having to decide whether to go or to stay with their families, so on and so forth. People desperate to get on. Um, people who were afraid of the North Vietnamese and what might happen to them, you know, trying to get on. But there's only a certain number of people they could take. I mean, they, they simply just couldn't empty out the country. I mean, millions of people. Um, it wasn't going to happen. So, uh, as I as I have to, often told the story, one of my last views of, of Vietnam was taking the helicopter out of Saigon and seeing the North Vietnamese tanks coming down the road, getting ready to uh, really sack the U.S. Embassy there, which they did within probably 12 hours of me leaving. And, uh, though I want to emphasize I wasn't there. They weren't waiting for me to leave before, <laughs> before they showed up. They they were on their way. But helicopters were leaving uh, uh, after you had left. Uh, yes. Yeah, there, there was, right up to the very end. I, mean, I would imagine that helicopters were still leaving, probably actually even left after the embassy was... Uh, reached, mm. uh, you know, from other parts of the city and things like that. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, the helicopters would get back to the to the ship, unload their passengers, get orders to go back, and then finally uh, there was a stand-down order. Stand-down order is basically you cease and desist whatever you're doing. And, mm. uh, there was a stand-down order, and the ships got underway, as that sail for the States. Did you also get to see them uh, pushing the uh, helicopters over? Oh yes, yeah. I, I actually participated in pushing. Are you in the, any, any of the footage and the that you can see online? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Would um, you recognize yourself? Oh, I'm sure I would. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I mean, many helicopters were pushed over. I mean, it was it was again pandemonium right. there. I mean, just trying to get you know enough people, enough things. Uh, I mean, when we set. When we started to steam, which is the naval term for moving, uh, they weren't even sure where we were going initially. I mean, they didn't know if we were going to go to the Philippines and drop people off, or try to get to another Asian country and drop people off, or maybe go to Australia, or go to the United States, or what. And, uh, I mean, I was just sitting there like, here I am. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm safe. So. Yes, and very grateful to be safe. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that that's a that's a thing that people don't they the end of wars or the end of conflict they don't think that's um, comes to this year and then hostilities end right. but um, not a lot of people I think unless they see those those very vivid pictures of the helicopters being pushed off the ships or um, everybody lining up to go up to the last helicopter the the imagery of a war coming well at least this kind of war where it wasn't we didn't call that victory or whatever. We, well, we certainly shouldn't have. No, yeah, I mean, no, it, of course it was not. a disaster. I mean, it was. Uh, uh, there is an excellent book by uh, a major, army major general. He wrote it when he was a major. His name is H. R. McAllister or Macaulay, something like this, mm -hmm. um, and it was called "Dereliction of Duty." Is the name of the book, and um, you know, it really just talked about. The total failure of the entire process. And, uh, mm -hmm. You mean the, well, uh, which process? Uh, of Vietnam. Of the, I mean, from all of it. The initial uh, use of advisors to the way we funded it, or the way we trained them, or the the, the uh, ordinance ordinance meaning weaponry we gave them, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and then after Vietnam, where did you? Move on to. Uh, then I was back at, at with my battalion in uh, Camp Pendleton, and I stayed there uh, for another year. And then I was in Okinawa, and then I was in the Philippines, Subic Bay, <clears throat> which was a at that time I still I believe it was still the largest American naval base outside of the United States. It's not closed. It's been closed for maybe twenty years, but I was there. At that time, my, my um, obligation of service ended, and I decided to stay on. I was promoted to captain, uh, sent back to the United States, 
I went to a uh, a captain commands a company, and I was sent to a company commander's course. I then received an infantry company command of, uh, and served there for the next two years as company commander. And then I began I began my um, secondary career uh, in intelligence work, and uh, I went to the intelligence school. And we just we did we would analyze information, whether it be photographs, imagery, um, information, and uh, and that was became my. In the Marine Corps, all military services you have what's called an MOS. It's your military occupational specialty, which is basically your job description. And so I was what is called an 0311, which is an infantry officer uh, with a secondary MOS in intelligence. And I did that until I was, I was promoted to the rank of major after about nine and a half years. Uh, I then became an XO, which is the executive officer of a battalion, uh, served there for several years, about two and a half, I suppose, I think, now that I'm reflecting. Um, and after two and a half years, uh, I left that post and went back into intelligence work, and that's where I stayed uh, through the rest of my career, which is about another seven or eight years, um, when I retired as a lieutenant colonel. That was in my military career in 1995. So you were also in the Middle East. I was in the Middle East for a long time. Uh, that became my area, my specialty area, mm. with all the problems that go on there. There's always a lot of work and a lot of people. So I was, uh, I spent about five years in Israel, about two years in Egypt, and about a year in Lebanon, and then uh, again all in Marine Corps, mm-hmm. and. Uh, all but Lebanon, all but Lebanon were. By that time, I had a wife and two children, and that was um, what they call soft duty, meaning in Israel and Egypt, my family accompanied me. Okay. We lived together, yeah, in a, in a house, you know, in a home, in, mm-hmm. uh, not on a base of any sort. That is referred to as living on the economy, <laughs> and that, meaning you basically are not living on a base; you're living. Uh, just a normal like anyone life else, day. Yes. Yeah. So how? Uh, let's start with the. Uh, I guess you were in Okinawa and and Philippines. I was in Okinawa, Philippines. You uh, had free time to just go around and hang out. Or not? Um, at that time, I was not married, so um, I, I, when I would get when I have leave, I would go to uh, up to the Big Islands in, in Japan to Hong Kong. Uh, also, you have, but you know, you have to also remember this in the 1970s. So there's a lot of places you couldn't travel. I mean, you couldn't really tra- travel to China, Eastern Europe, uh, Warsaw Pact countries. Mm-hmm. So I was limited to that. But still, there were interesting places. To visit, oh, yeah. certainly. I mean, I was when I was in the Philippines. The Philippines is a fascinating place. I mean, their their culture. I mean, it is the, the epitome of a multicultural society. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chinese, Japanese, Malaysians. Uh, People of Spanish descent, Polynesian descent, uh, natives to the island. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting place. And from there, I, I went to Australia, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. When you were the, uh, in the Asian countries, did they speak English? Or how did uh, you... In the Philippines, to some degree, yes. Because okay. uh, there had been Americans there yes. before, anyway. And Malaysia had been a, a uh, British colony. British colony. And, uh, but for. In Vietnam, no, um, not really. It, I, I, though I have to say that whenever you get to a a country, the wealthier, educated people could generally speak mm-hmm. some English. Mm-hmm. I know. Let's see, and then uh, when you were in the Middle East with your family, um, did you get to travel, or did you just stay? Uh, again, and it was it must have been difficult with the family. Uh, yes, I mean you can't. How to say, but I mean, Egypt is a fascinating place, uh, and we did a lot of traveling there, a lot of traveling in Israel. Mm-hmm. Lebanon, I was unaccompanied. My family still lived in Israel, uh, but I was in Lebanon, and I used to helicopter 
from Beirut back to Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Um, How long does that take? Oh, about an hour and a half. Oh, that's it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a huge distance. Um, most, most every week. But um, it was a... I mean, Syria was always a difficult place to travel. Jordan was okay. No one wanted to go to Iraq. No one wanted to go to Libya. You know, yeah. uh, we did go to Morocco a couple of times just for vacations. Uh, mm-hmm. Where in Morocco did you go? Along the coast with Casablanca, Fez, okay. uh, you know, Marrakesh. Just travel. You know, I, I thought I had never had the opportunity as a child to travel, and I thought it was important for my children to have some exposure. How old were they when you were traveling with them? Uh, they were young at that time. Yeah. Um, I mean, my youngest daughter barely remembers my Marine Corps service. Uh, <laughs> Entirely. She, yeah, she, in a lot because when I, when I was finishing up in Israel for security reasons, I wore civilian clothes to, to, to work. So she, does, you know, she just uh, remembers a couple of photographs of like maybe me holding her or standing together and I was in uniform. Uh, my oldest daughter has a better memory of that. But most of the traveling they remember took place after I finished in the military and started with the State Department. So, um, traveling at this early age, do you think that that influenced what they might have done later? Or um, That's a difficult question. My oldest daughter is a physician. Okay. She doesn't particularly like to travel. <laughs> well, I guess it's not for everybody. Though she has fond memories of, of living abroad. Uh, she really likes the fact that she lives now in a small town uh, and has had the same friends for the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, my youngest daughter loves to travel. She lives in Europe now. Um, and she has many memories of traveling and wants to create more. So uh, I suppose it, it affects you. I just don't think it really affects you the same way. Yeah, yeah. Individuals the same way. It's true. Um, a lot of people, because I come from a small town, and a lot of people, they do, they like it. They like the mm-hmm. just staying put for ever, basically. Yeah, just well, you know, my brother is from. Uh, my brother and I grew up in New York City, and my brother is a real estate attorney there, and he's never really lived in. Well, he's never lived anywhere besides New York City, and even though it's a big city. I mean, he's had some of the same friends for 50 years. And, uh, you know, he really enjoys that. In fact, I enjoy it too because he and I are only a year apart. So uh, I've been able to stay in contact with some of these people simply because he stayed in contact with them Mm. over the years. So I see them and I enjoy that interaction. Though our lives have been, you know, extremely different from people who've lived in one place all their life and the person has done a lot of traveling. So have you stayed in touch with uh, the people that you've met during your time traveling and in the service? In the military, yes, because there's different reunions and Mm -hmm. things like that 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 go. I'm not a huge reunion goer, but I will. I mean, there's probably two events a year, and I probably make it to every fifth one every Mm -hmm. couple of years, two or three years. Um, But I enjoy seeing the people, you know. Uh, Who are those organized by? Well... There's Marine Corps organizations, mm-hmm. and then there's uh, regiment organizations and battalion organizations, and I mean even down to uh, some guys who are enlisted, you know, like just for two or three years. Um, particularly Vietnam era, you know, they're in a company which is like 140 men, and they still arrange their own get-togethers every couple of years. So, at all levels, you know, there's a magazine called Leatherneck which is a nickname for Marines. Mm-hmm. And um, it, in the back, it has all the announcements for get-togethers by different units. And, of course, now with emails, people are on the email. Well, she's there. Yes. Yeah. And I wonder how it was before. I mean, now, well, you have these reunions, but let's say longer time ago, maybe in the Second World War, I, maybe they didn't have any contact after they all went home. Uh, you know, um, I would refer everybody to uh, an excellent HBO series that was done by the same Spielberg and, and um, 
Tom Hanks. Yeah. Tom Hanks did Band of Brothers. And then the second, second series was called Pacific. It mm -hmm. was about the Marines in the Pacific during the Second World War. And it is based upon a book. And I can't remember the name of the author or the name of the book. There was a few, actually. There was one I remember with the old breed. And that's... Is that Robert Lucky? Maybe. But it, I suggest anybody read that because it's an 11-episode series. And the first episode and the last episode are filmed in the States. And um, the guys, the young men getting ready to go off to war. Uh, conversation with their family, with their girlfriend. You know, will you wait for me? They're married to somebody else when they come home type mm -hmm. of thing. And then the last series is, I thought it was just very well done. They were, they get back to California from the Pacific and they get on the train heading east. And as they're going, um, guys are getting off you know, closest, you know, place that's close to home because they they live anywhere from, I think, somewhere in New Mexico all the way to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And just one train. And just one way. train, and they're all together on the train. And sometimes it's an emotional farewell. Uh, this one guy who was kind of standoffish, when they got to New Orleans, he just quietly, it was like 4.30 in the morning, he just quietly picked up his bag and walked off the train, and uh, didn't you know? Didn't wake anybody up to say goodbye. He, when they woke up, he was gone. Uh, so I mean, the military. You often say, "Oh, hear people say he was a, a marine type or a navy type or air force type," but my observation and experience has been that all the services carry a huge variety of people. I mean. Some are extroverted, introverted. Uh, some are prone to violence. Some people are very gentle. Uh, some people are tolerant. Some aren't. It's just like like society in general. Yeah, I think these series, if they're done well, like Band of Brothers and like Pacific, they do show that that's this diversity. I remember in the first in Band of Brothers, they had some pretty crazy people getting pretty violent, and then they also have this this one guy who I think uh, he was a he was at one of the Ivy Leagues, and he just happened to find his, himself in Europe and didn't particularly want to be there. Um, so, No, I think that you know, once you have your first taste of being shot at and the romance dies, mm -hmm. no one really wants to be there. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Yeah. Were you ever shot at? Oh, yes. Where? Uh, in Vietnam, mm -hmm. in Lebanon. Uh, what, what, what was... I guess for those who don't know, what, what was happening in Lebanon when you were there? Well, there are several things that happened in Lebanon. The, the initial thing was the, the outbreak of the Second Civil War mm -hmm. in the early 1970s. Uh, that week in the central government to the point where uh, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, moved in a, a large number of fighters into, into the southern part of, of Lebanon, and they would then... Um, attack Israel with Katusha rockets. Katusha rockets are... Katusha is a diminutive name for Catherine, or Katarina in, in uh, Russian. Mm -hmm. uh, but during the Second World War, this rocket system was called Stalin's organ because of the, the way it looks. And they would simply fire a bunch of rockets into Israel, northern Israel, or mortars or things like that. And so what happened was 1982, uh, Israel attacked Lebanon, and there was already the forming of what was called the Southern Lebanon Army, the SLA, which were basically a Christian militia group of uh, Lebanese Christians, and they supplied them with weapons and training and so on and so forth. And so later in 82, the U.S. military intervened up there and put uh, several hundred, well, actually a couple thousand troops up there, including about 500 Marines. In 1983, the Marine Corps barracks bombing took place and killing uh, almost 250 Marines, which was is the largest single-day loss of Marines since the Tet Offensive in the Second War, in, uh, Vietnam. Vietnam War, 1968. 
which was a, a very big deal in the Marine Corps. So you were there after and then the, the, I was in there during and after and during and after. And what was that situation in I guess there were several, I guess, when you were shot at. Oh yes. I mean, you know, sometimes you'd just be you know, driving down the road and and you'd hear this ping 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 oh, <laughs> and uh, uh. <laughs> you know, and uh, you'd hit the gas and get going, you know. I mean you'd be wearing your uh at that time we called them flak jackets, mm. now called body armor and helmets and things like that. Even if you're driving in a civilian car, we would take uh more flak jackets and put them on the floor of the car. Uh, so if you ran a, a landmine, you'd have some protection. <laughs> so this was a, a combat mission in Lebanon, or well, you know, I I, I just recently heard this, this comment by a, a Marine Corps general. He said, regardless of what you're looking for, the reason your mission there. When you're being shot at, you're in combat. <laughs> you know, it's just that that's just you know, that's just the So reality. what did they tell you when they're sending you there like this is what what were you doing? Your intelligence. Yeah, we're yeah, so. intelligence and you know, we're out <coughs> you know, what happens is um you know, they the PLO or mm -hmm. the insurgents or whoever they happen to be, the Lebanese regular army, you know, they they have a beef with you and they see you and uh, they recognize you as not being Lebanese or or other Arabs, and they open fire. That's you know the, yeah. the reality of it. That's how it was in Iraq. They didn't they, like just it's, uh, it's where it is everywhere. I mean, if yeah. they recognize you as being uh, the enemy or not their friends. They, yeah. they have no and and in Vietnam, what was the situation? It was bef before the evacuation. You were <clears throat> in some sort of role. Yes, but I was only there for a few weeks before the. I won't, I won't Already were being shot at. Oh yes, I mean you know it's a lot of it. Is, the shooting is not so much to actually hurt somebody, but disrupt whatever they're trying mm -hmm. to do. And, uh, and and you know so that when they're riding home, they're telling them this place is miserable. You know you can't walk halfway down the street without being shot at. Mm -hmm. and, you know, by that time, after the Tet Offensive, public opinion uh, for the war in Vietnam changed radically. And that is how Richard Nixon uh, became elected, is he was on a uh, de-escalation of the war and uh, promising to de-escalate, mm -hmm. which in fact he did do. Um, but uh, that was his, his mission, his goal. And that's a... Um I think we learn in school, at least the ones who are paying attention, that the Tet Offensive um, may not have been so much of a military victory for North Vietnam, but because of the way it was spun in the media. No, that it was, certainly was not. I mean, in terms of numbers killed, and they lost tens of thousands of, of people, both Viet Cong and North Vietnamese regulars. Mm -hmm. And in the bombing campaign that went on after that, they lost tens of thousands more. However, what it did do, and this was the victory in it, is it changed American, the, America's population, general population, into being against the war. Mm -hmm. People just no longer supported the war. And mm -hmm. once the civilian population no longer supports uh, the political military thing, it, it, it's over. It, it's over. Yeah. In a democracy, particularly. Uh, mm -hmm. But even even in a totalitarian country, if the People simply won't support the government anymore. It collapses. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a cause of it said. Yes. As a continuation of politics. Yes. It means. And if it doesn't work, uh, if the political side isn't working, the military side, it's, it doesn't, doesn't, so, doesn't matter so much. Yeah. When you... Um, it is required reading for officers. Right? Yes. Uh, they have... Um, in, in the Marine Corps... They have the Marine Corps officers required reading this, mm -hmm. and they have also have the Marine Corps senior NCO, senior non-commissioned officers reading this, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they have the and then they have the staff NCOs required reading this. And I mean, you have to get the book, check it out, uh, and 
you know, sign something saying they've read it. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually even have sometimes they have um, what do they call them in Spain? It's uh, book clubs mm-hmm. where you you know sit together and, and discuss. Yeah, you know, read the first ten chapters, and on Monday we're all going to sit down and discuss it. You know? Cool. It's like class again. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So, how long ago did you read Clausewitz? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Forty years ago, I think. Yeah. yeah. Wait, so I think I actually I read it. I think in uh, when I was in my ROTC classes. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it's important because the the newest translation didn't come out until 1976, mm-hmm. and so what you might have been reading was the, the well, I think the I older the old, version, older version. But I think I've read the newer version also, yeah. or parts of it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. All the Officers that I've talked to, or maybe even retired like you, um, even if they didn't read uh, the newer version when they were coming up the ranks, they know about the newer version. Yes, yes. That's very important, I think, that, that translation. Yes. That's the one I read when I was in class, and uh, it was very, very important in my education. Yes, because you've talked about it quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think anyone who talks to me long enough, it, it gets back to Clausewitz always, yes. even if it's unrelated, it comes right back to it. Well, you know, um, war, I'm, I'm sure, is a unique experience. However, uh, it translates to just about everything else. I mean, mm-hmm. just like everything does. I mean, traveling is uh, understandable. I mean, everything is kind of in a context that Overlaps with other things. Yeah, I was I was uh, just recently, just even yesterday, listening to a podcast. It was with a former Navy SEAL, and he said that uh, war is what exactly did he say? He said war is uh, it's civilian life, but amplified. Mm -hmm. So if you can if you can make your way in war. Civilian life is there's there's a lot you can just translate right back. Well, to yeah, it. I mean, I think that's particularly true now. Um, you know, with a situation like in Iraq or Syria, where the average civilian is under threat of terrorism uh, every day, with almost no way, no way to combat it. Mm-hmm. They're not on a compound like the American troops are, or things like that. They don't have weaponry. They don't have any type of uh, self-defense mechanism there that, you know, and they, they are simply waiting to become a victim. Did you get to visit Syria when you were... No, I've no. never Syria. No. What was the situation at the time when you were there? Well, in Syria? In Syria. Well, I'm, well, I was never in Syria, but I mean, uh, it's always been under the Assad family, mm-hmm. and not always, I mean, but for the last 40 years. Recent memory. Yeah. Yes, and... Uh, you know, it's always been a dictatorship. It's always been the Alawite minority controlling the majority of the people. Uh, and, you know, the situation that has occur- is occurring now has been brewing for, you know, for the last 40 years. And uh, it's kind of surprising it hadn't uh, manifested itself in this way before. Now, uh, your time in the State Department, could you... Give us well, a chronology of that. It, it, what happened was, I, I received, I became an O6P. Now, in the military, in all ranks have a pay grade. So, the reason they call, um, well, for example, if you are E7, enlisted grade 7, in the Marine Corps, you are called a gunnery sergeant. Uh, if you were in the Navy, you're called a chief petty officer. If you're in the uh, Air Force, you're called a master sergeant. Uh, in the Army, you're called a first sergeant. So to remember all these is difficult, so they use a E grade to show that you are of the same rank. Uh, so I was an 06 promotable, meaning I was I received permission to be promoted to full colonel, the 06 rank, uh, but I was waiting for a billet, a slot to open up. At that time, though, I was 
being recruited by the State Department. And I thought, you know, my, my family needs a little bit more of a stable life, so on and so forth. Uh, I have enough time to retire. We start receiving 55% of my pay, you know, for the rest of my life. And, you know, so having that income plus the State Department income uh, is, is quite good. I mean, because I had a, a, an advanced placement in the State Department because of so many years of experience. But it has to be understood that a military pension, even though the military is run by the federal government, is not the same as the federal government pension. So I was receiving that pay plus the pay in the State Department, which created you know, a nice income for the family and I. And uh, so I took that job. I was in D.C. for a couple of years. Uh, and then again, back to the Middle East. And so over the next 20 years, I served in Israel almost eight years, um, Egypt for two, London for two, Amsterdam for two, and the rest of the time in D.C. Well, four years in D.C. and two years in, in, at the U.N. in New York City. Which is the only time I've lived back in New York City since I left. When was that? How, so, how was that coming back to New York City? Um, you know, I've been, of course, I've been back for vacations and to, to visit uh, my my brother, my mother, when she was alive, many times. Um, but um, you know, living back there, it was so expensive. <laughs> it was just, I, I mean, it was mind numbing. Um, you know, we, you received um, the housing allowance and things like that, but it was just, you know, our children were, um, at that time, just finishing high school and in, so I think in 12th grade and 8th grade, and uh, we had them in Catholic schools which was an alternative to a completely private school or to a public school, mm -hmm. which were, are, tend to be disasters in Manhattan. And, um, you know, it, it was interesting because, but, you know, but being in New York City is quite an experience, you know, it's quite an experience. I mean, in terms of my, my children, um, they're fascinated by it. It's a fascinating city. I mean, it really is. You can, you can do all sorts of things. So I, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, D.C. I enjoyed. Uh, the Middle East I enjoyed. Um, though right now I'm kind of uh, looking forward to kind of establishing myself down in San Luis Obispo and uh, spending time with my family. Just uh, um, what would you want to do there? Well, you know, my dream job uh, can you explain that to me? <laughs> I, 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 I've been offered different consulting jobs mm -hmm. that would entail travel, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to avoid that, at least for the time being. Um, my dream job would probably be to work at, at Williams-Sonoma or uh, uh, Tabla, uh selling high-end kitchen goods. I, I love to cook. I love all the different gadgets. I really can't walk down the street and walk by one of the stores without stopping in for a few minutes to see what's new and, or what I'd like to have. Um, so uh, I've seriously thought about once I get back to San Luis Obispo this week of going in and applying uh, for at least a, a um, Christmas time <laughs> sales job. I bet you'd have a lot of fun during Christmas time. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I, I would actually see if I liked it or the romance was gone, you know, but, uh, and then I have to decide, though, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 65, I, you know, I have two pensions, I, I really don't have to work in terms of, for money, uh, but I probably would like to, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to usurp my daughter or her husband's uh, role in parenting and things like that by being around all the time. You know, I'd like to be there to help out and to do things like that. But I'd like to have my own life, too. Uh, and, you know, once I get established down there, I'd perhaps look for uh, a, uh, a nice woman to have a nice relationship with. Um, so uh, these are all the things that I kind of have in my mind. And, again, traveling 
is not conducive to those. No, it is not. That, that, <laughs> you just don't, you know, yeah. find that type of thing. So that's kind of my uh, my future. It's just, I, it seems that you've been traveling for almost all of your life. Uh, yes, I, I, I've lived, um, I don't know. I mean, the last 42 years, I've lived abroad, I think, 28 or 29 of the years and even then sometimes you were in different cities yeah and then and then and and then uh and then even when i was in the states i was a lot of times i was on a marine base which is like kind of being in a a different world too so you know do you ever look back and and just say wow what 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 a trip this has been you know it's it's interesting um a couple months ago I got a phone call. I was at home, and from a number I didn't recognize, and a woman said, "Dave, uh, I'll give you one guess to who this is, but I'll hang up and never call back." And then she laughed, and I said, "Penelope," and it was my college girlfriend. Wow. I haven't seen her for more than forty years, and you know she's happily married. She has three children. Uh, She's married, I don't know, 35, 36 years. But she decided, I guess, about a year ago to start looking up her old friends, you know. And uh, we ended up, our, our initial conversation, we talked for about two and a half hours, just, you know, what wow. do you do? And what we really decided was that life is just a, a, a momentary flicker of time. I mean, you get to, I mean, the last time we, the last time we saw each other, uh, I was going in the Marine Corps, and she was going off to do a teaching credential. And now we're both retired, <laughs> you know. Uh, now we both have grandchildren. And then, so it's a very interesting thing that time just goes so quickly, and you don't, you don't notice it. You know, it's just over. And I, 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 I forget the true qu- quotation, but I often think at the end of life, you don't really regret the things you've done as much as you regret the things you didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so my suggestion to all young people is if you want to do something, figure out a way to do it. As long as you're being honest, you're not hurting anybody, or you're not neglecting anybody that you shouldn't, uh, go ahead and do what you need to do. Is that how you lived your life? No. I was just being quiet. No. What I mean is I think that Yes, I think I was honest with people. I think that I, I had a uh, a thing of, of service. Um, you know, I think I lived I've lived a good life in terms of, of you know what I did what I do. I mean, even though I'm divorced now, I know that you know my ex wife will say, um, well, you know, like she, she told my daughter, well, as long as the grandkids are with your dad. Everything's going to be okay. You know, he won't ever let them, anything happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so I think that I, I've gained people's trust and things like that, which I think is good. Uh, though, you know, I wish I could have spent more time as an adult with my brother. I wish I could have spent more time with my mother when she was older. Uh, but I, I didn't uh, because I was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I had a different master. And, uh, that was that. So, but no, I think that life has been good, and uh, I've enjoyed it. I'm really kind of looking forward to the next. There's still a lot. There's still, uh, still <laughs> my next fifty years. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, I don't know. It, it it is you know interesting that you never really know how much time you have. I mean, even young people. Uh, I a guy I went to Marine Corps uh, training with died of a heart attack when he was 29 years old. And it was not a uh, genetic heart of, you know, it was simply a heart attack, heart attack. And uh, what can you do? I mean, I people don't really know what what's going to happen. Did you ever have a moment when you uh, you you thought, wait, um, you you thought about your parents and you said, oh, they also didn't know what was going on either, because <laughs> I have that I have that feeling where. Wait, you, you you become an adult, I guess. Yes. You become an adult, and then you you realize, hey, wait! I thought my parents knew what was going on. 
Well, the <laughs> well, you know the famous quote from Will Rogers? No. Will Rogers said, uh, when I was a teenager, my father was the dumbest son of a bitch I ever met. <laughs> so then I got drafted into the Army for a couple of years. When I got back, I was surprised at how smart he got in just two years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think that a lot of people have that, that attitude. I mean, that I mean, I can see it like with my... Um, I mean, just right before Thanksgiving, my daughter was saying something to her, uh, to her oldest daughter that I can remember her mother saying to her, and uh, and she and she recognized this and she turned to me to me and said, "I sound like a broken record, don't I?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know some things are just, just become true. I mean, there are certain ways you have to, um, you know, to a large extent in life, you have to go along to get along. I mean, and, you know, you can't always be. Uh, the outsider or you simply just become the outsider mm -hmm. and that's all you are is the outsider and because uh, no one wants to deal with you anymore you know? so if you were if you were in the position to call the shots in US foreign policy today what are, what I, are I'm, certainly, I'm certainly not an isolationist but what I'd say is that we have to let these people have some sort of level of self-determination and to support places like uh, Saudi Arabia and things like that. It angers the Arab people because these are brutal uh, dictatorships um, and they look at them being in power because the United States allows them to be in power or uh, does not allow them to be overthrown. Uh, also, that these people are not craving democracy, at least in the same way that we think about it in the United States. It's a different society. It's a different way of living, and we have to respect that. Um, I think to a, lot of, a large degree, we just have to say, time to butt out. You know, just you folks do what you need to do, and uh, good luck to you, and et cetera, et cetera. So are you optimistic at all? <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, hopefully, we, though it doesn't seem we've learned from our mistakes, maybe that day will come and we will start uh, learning from those mistakes. Um, what do you think are important aspects of leadership being uh, in the in leadership positions in the Marines and seeing well, how it is. I mean, you have to have a dedication to duty, uh, to, to get things done. Uh, however, in the Marine Corps, you are simply a function of the political system. You know, whatever that is being decided politically by the president is your job to carry out. And, and, but you find this true, I mean, if you work for the city's uh, road department, you don't fix the roads you want to fix, you fix the roads that the city decides need to be fixed. Same thing in the military, same thing even where you're working. I mean, you do what Courtney says, and, uh, and that's your mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. uh, she may be right, she may be wrong, uh, she may recognize she's right or wrong, uh, you may not, but that's just the way it goes. Um, the, uh, maybe the, the one most valuable lesson I've learned from the Marine Corps are two things. To get anything done, you have to work together, and there has to be somebody in charge. Uh, this thing of everybody trying to do something different and trying to cope, you know, it, it's just a waste of time at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, even when you put something together, if you look at the number of hours everybody individually has worked on something, and then fought about, fought over how it's going to be implemented. You've spent a lot more hours than if you simply said, Joe, you're in charge. You four people are working for Joe. Mm -hmm. And next week, uh, Emily's in charge and everybody's working for Emily. You know, and Then you're going to find out who has the leadership ability and who does not. And, uh, because some people just don't. Some people just like to hang out.
know, be told what to do. Um, and what do you think is important for a president in terms of uh, being the commander-in-chief? In terms of being commander-in-chief? Mm -hmm. I mean, the president has all these other roles, of course. Yes. But... Uh, I'm not... I don't necessarily believe that the commander-in-chief needs to be a former military person. I mean, there have been obviously several... I mean, in the last... Well, the only president who has been uh, a career military person in the last 100 years has been Dwight Eisenhower. Um, in the previous 200 years, well, in the previous 200 years, I guess it had been... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt? No, he was not career. Oh, but... No, I'm not... I'm, no, a lot of people, a lot of presidents have served, but I'm talking about having, a, having been a professional soldier, professional... It, so like U.S. Grant, for example. Grant. Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, you know. Um, but there, very few have been career military people. Uh, but a lot of them have done very good jobs. Uh, but, you know, it's a difficult thing because, again, there are a lot of political things that are taking place that have an effect on the military and it really, a lot has to do with how well the president can control the military, the political aspects, to how well he can control the military aspects. Uh, you know, it's just like these people believe, I mean, to really contain somewhere like um, Iraq or Syria with American troops, you'd have to reinstitute the draft and, and put a million people on the ground. I mean, it would just, it's just, yeah, these are huge countries. Uh, they're mountainous. There are deserts. There, whatever happens to be, and that's the only way. I mean, if you don't put enough people there, they simply the insurgent people just move to another part of the part of the place. <laughs> that's just the way it is. It's it's not uh, it's not uh, rocket science. I mean, they just they go where you're not. The only way to be where they are is to have enough people there that you're everywhere. And no one wants to do that, you know, so. So what it, we've talked about this, what it will require is everything or nothing. Yes, well, you know, it, it's, it sounds, it's beyond my, anything that I wish for, but I mean, you would have to, unfortunately, you'd have to be willing to kill a huge segment of the civilian population to deal with people like ISIS. I mean, you just have to say, well, this is the collateral damage, this is war, and um, if ISIS is embedded in that, well, at least we know where they all are, so we'll bomb that city back into the Stone Age and, and you know, hope that we kill, you know, a the large group. Guys. What's that? The bad guys. The bad guys, but we also realize that the majority of people who are going to be killed are going to be civilians. I mean... I don't advocate this, and I hope people don't, but it's just, in asymmetrical warfare, this is just a reality. I mean, they know they can't beat the Western powers on any type of symmetrical, fixed uh, battle, so they, they fight the way they can. I mean, you know, people will say what they have to say, but, you know, with all the high tech that the West has, you know, and Iraq and Afghanistan, they've pretty much fought the West to a standstill using Kalashnikov rifles, RPGs, and cell phones. Um, and, you know, bombs that they've made out of whatever they could find. You know, you know, they, they simply avoid. It's just classic guerrilla warfare. They don't engage a large or stronger enemy. How do you think that we haven't learned, I mean, this is almost exactly the same as what happened in Vietnam. I think that on a military level, we've learned, I mean, we, we understand. I mean, the military people are over there going, oh, geez, not this again. Yeah. Though you have to remember that there are very few, I don't know if there's any Vietnam veterans still in the military, because it's been 40 years, okay? Um, so I don't believe there are, but you know that, that they are historians. They've read about this, and they're just like, "Oh, geez, here we are again." 
Um, but, you know, I just don't know that, that America is really ready to initiate that type of war. You know, I just don't know. You said you knew, uh, well, you know personally General David Petraeus. Yes. How, how did that come about? Uh, when I worked for the State Department, he, and I, I was over in Iraq on numerous occasions, uh, he asked to meet with me based on a report that I had writ written, that he had read, mm -hmm. and he wanted to get my insight on a couple of things because he, in doing some research, he knew that I had been working in the Middle East for a long time. And uh, I, he had a group of, of military people um, and uh, academic people that he called his designated thinkers. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he would pick the brains of these people about, you know, what can we do? How can we do it? And, uh, you know, but the biggest problem was is that there are many good ideas. The military is, is, is interesting because there is this perception that, that military people are stupid and they think, well, just get a gun and shoot somebody. But there are a lot of very, very deep thinkers in the military, including uh, General Petraeus. I mean, one of the great minds of American political military thing is George Marshall, who was uh, general, chief of staff, and, and uh, later secretary of state. And he developed the Marshall Plan and many other things. Um, you know that these people are, have the capabilities of thinking deeply, but the problem is, is that there is a certain segment in Washington that if someone says General So and So has a great idea, they're like, no more military solutions. And in fact, it may be a non-military solution. It might be forget this military nonsense, let's just do this, do it this way. And uh, I mean, there is a perception now, and this will have to be my last uh, comment on the thing, is that people are saying that as the United States becomes more energy self-sufficient, that the Middle East will become irrelevant. Uh, it may be become irrelevant for the supply of oil, but because of ISIS and these other things and moving out and and also these, what appears in San Bernardino, California with the shootings, of these people being a sort of independent co-ISIS type things. You know, they pledge their allegiance to ISIS. They, they may not know anybody in ISIS. But Individual radicalization. Yes. It, it, who are willing to, you know, get together few thousand rounds of ammunition and go shoot up uh, do their own thing a school or whatever it happens to be mm -hmm. um, so us moving out of there um, is not going to do a whole lot of good uh, unless we just with the perhaps ex exception if we simply tell our now allies like Saudi Arabia things like that well be on your own uh, however you don't know in Saudi Arabia what they may do uh, to people there. I mean, they might expel every non-Saudi and kill a couple hundred thousand Saudis and say, okay, well, now it's peaceful again. Uh, you, you know. That's how peace is defined over there. I guess. Yes, well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, um, peace can become, I mean, perfect example is Germany in the Second World War. Peace was achieved in Germany by extreme violence. And, um, you know, they, it, it, it might be one of the only cases, and certainly the only case in recent memory, of, in which a country was just beaten so badly, it took the fight out of them. You know, they're not really for any type of uh, warfare anymore. It's very unpopular. It's very unpopular, you know, yeah. because they grew up with parents who, or grandparents who, who suffered, you know, I mean, uh, not only during the war, but the death deprivations after the war and the separated Germany the separated Germany and all these other things and they don't want that anymore mm -hmm. you know and uh, you know it's just like that was a type of, of beating they you know that, but I mean it was inflicted upon them simply because they wouldn't quit when they earlier had an opportunity to quit and uh, so 
warfare simply because you don't really know who the enemy is until they do something and uh, and the enemy can be a small percentage of the population so they're not you know isis is not looking for the support of uh, the iraqi or the syrian government you know they are self-supporting and they are Yeah, we're coming up on our time. So Yes, indeed. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you for efforts. being here. It was an honor to talk to well, you. You too, and uh, it's been a pleasure. And next next time we're going to have to do uh, What's It Like Growing Up uh, in uh, Delaware. When you in Delaware. Taiwan. It'll be the most interesting <laughs> pod episode of Fun Book Diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, but thanks again. You're welcome.